Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. In my interview with Bill Leonard in episode 29 of this podcast, we talked about the state of Christianity and the church today. But any consideration of what's going on within Christianity and the church has ramifications also for what's going on in theological education because the divinity school or seminary has always had an interactive relationship with the church and local congregations. So this episode is the first of a two-part conversation about the state of theological education. I realize that because of the unfortunate, unnecessary, and discouraging division or gap between the experience of regular folks and so-called higher, advanced university education, I have lost some listeners to this episode upon the reading of its title. I also realize that there are those of you who, for the same reasons, are tentative, listening briefly, dipping in at least to give it a chance. Well, if you're in that group, please stay with me, because although it may not seem like it at first, what is happening presently in theological education is linked to the larger cultural foment that is being expressed and taking shape in widely diverse areas and ways, but of which the publicly apparent manifestations are in concerns for Black Lives Matter, the recent hate crimes against Asian peoples, and also the phenomenon of Donald Trump and his devoted followers. These things and the cultural foment are the fruit of a legacy of a long history. The division I spoke about between regular folks and university education carries over into the division between people in the pew and Christian churches and the seminary or divinity school, the places that train people for Christian ministry. The difference in the gap between regular folks and the university and the gap between the person in the pew and the seminary or divinity school seems to be one of relevance. Even though regular folks may not be interested in the complex and technical discussions of the university, there is mostly the accepted conviction that what is happening in the university is important, that it contributes in some way to the betterment of society. But the gap between the pew and the seminary or divinity school is the conviction that what is taught in the seminary or divinity school doesn't connect with and is thus unimportant and irrelevant to those in the pew. There was a wide and long frustration by congregants and ministers that how ministers are trained has little to do with what is happening in the church. This is all the more reason for why all Christians should have an interest in theological education, because what happens in the seminary finds its way, for good or not, into the congregation. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, there was enough dissatisfaction with theological education that a large and extended conversation began to diagnose and address the problem. The first voice on the scene was Vanderbilt University Divinity School theologian Edward Farley's in his book, Theologia. He argued 
that due to the impact of modern science on all education, seminaries and divinity schools have become places of scientific or academic specialties, and that ministry students are being inadequately trained in a growing diversity of these specialties. Farley proposed that what once existed, but has been lost and needs to be recovered, is a training in wisdom and judgment that arises from a deeply lived faith. He called this wisdom theologia, or a habitus, a habit of mind formed by a faithful lifestyle. His research and insights were penetrating and perceptive and resonated across the conversation. At the same time, a group of seven feminists, comprised of people of different colors and ethnicities, called the Mudflower Collective, offered a prophetically alternative diagnosis to the problems of theological education in their book, God's Fierce Whimsy. For them, the problems of theological education is rooted in the fact that it has been, as has all Western education, so infused for centuries now with a legacy of colonial imperialism and white male supremacy that the legacy goes unnoticed. Although the Mudflower Collective make no mention of Farley or his contribution, his effort was a clear example of what they were critiquing because nowhere in Farley's extended, accurate research is any mention made of the impact of that terrible legacy. It was an indication of how deeply infused and invisible the legacy is. As is sadly the case throughout history, initial prophetic voices get dismissed and ignored. So it has been with the Mudflower Collective's critique. Now, however, nearly 40 years later, former dean of Yale Divinity School, Willie James Jennings, in his book published last year, after whiteness and education and belonging, has, at least in my mind, revived the conversation of the inadequacy of theological education and especially the diagnosis offered by the Mudflower Collective. His book is testimony that not much has changed in 40 years. Jennings argues that there are two at least perceived crises in theological education. The one that has captured the most attention is the crisis of decline. As a whole host of research and news reports have demonstrated, Christianity in the United States and Europe has declined significantly. The numbers of people attending church activities and worship has dropped, and the numbers of people identifying themselves as Christians has also dropped. This decline has extended into the decrease in the number of seminary and divinity school students and the financial resources available to seminaries and divinity schools. The other crisis, named by the Mudflower Collective, is the unnoticed distortion in all of Western education, including seminary and divinity school education, due to the impact of the legacy of colonial imperialism and white male supremacy. Awareness of this crisis is finally being acknowledged because of a shift in the populations of seminary and divinity school students. Those who were once the minority 
females, people of color, and of different ethnicities are becoming the majority. Jennings rightly argues that the crisis of distortion is more crucial than the crisis of decline. In my mind, this is true because the decline is due, in part, to the distortion. Also in my mind is the conviction not only of the accuracy of the critiques the Mudflower Collective and Jennings offer, but in the important way they offer their critique, by telling personal stories and interweaving poetry into their arguments. It seems to me that both the Mudflower Collective and Jennings provide outstanding examples of the very wisdom and judgment born of deeply lived faiths or theologia Farley was seeking. So, three wonderful people have generously agreed to talk with us about their experiences in theological education and what is going on in theological education now. All three are deans who are in positions to monitor and shape the way theological education is done. In this part, we will focus upon my guest's own experience in theological education and their assessment of theological education's present state. In part two, we will focus mostly upon what's going on in the institutions where they are deans, and then what they perceive is needing to happen next in theological education. Dr. Emily M. Towns is dean and distinguished professor of womanist ethics and society at Vanderbilt University Divinity School. The very Reverend Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas is Dean of the Episcopal Divinity School at Union Theological Seminary, the Bill and Judith Moyers Chair in Theology at Union Theological Seminary, Canon Theologian at Washington National Cathedral, and Theologian in Residence at Trinity Church, Wall Street. Dr. Karen Massey, is Associate Dean of Master's Programs at Mercer University's McAfee School of Theology, the Chair of the Watkins Christian Foundation, and Associate Professor of Christian Education at McAfee. Well, welcome each of you. Thank you for being with me. I am deeply grateful uh, for you being here. Uh, So let's begin uh, by letting each of you describe your own spiritual journey as that has led you into theological education and now taking some uh, uh, leadership and and responsibility for a theological uh, educational institution. And we're going to begin with Emily. So, Emily, thank you for going first. Thanks, David. And it's good to be here with uh, Kelly and Karen. Um, I was raised in a little United Methodist Mission Church in Durham, North Carolina, Asbury Temple United Methodist Church, a little church by the side of the road where everybody's somebody and Christ is the Lord. And uh, that's what we said. When I was uh, growing up in the mid to late 50s, early 60s, we had a minister of that church, uh, Doug Moore, who strongly believed that you form a deep spiritual life in your walk with God, and also you take that spiritual life and you share it with the world. And that's what we now call social witness. So I was formed 
with the understanding that spirituality and social witness, social action, social activism, activism, um, witnessing, go hand in hand in, in one spiritual walk. You don't separate them. You don't think they're different spheres of influence. You, you try to live a life of integrity. And over the years, um, I have taken that with me uh, to now as uh, the Dean of Vanderbilt Divinity School. Uh, that's what I think about when I'm doing my job. How do we combine what we're doing in all the ways that we do um, theological school that shows um, some element of a spiritual journey for a lot of people in this case, but also how we share that with the larger world um, and try to be a part of on God's ongoing revelation. So that, that spirituality for me um, forms and shapes me even on those days when I'd really rather not be bothered. Um, wish everybody would behave, the world would be a good place. Um, we wouldn't have to fight so hard for the rights of, of the many. Um, but it's abiding um, and it, it stays with me. Kelly? Thank you, David. And it really is a pleasure being here with uh, Emily and, and Karen, whom I'm with for the uh, first time. And thank you, Emily, uh, for your response. I think when I think of what brought me uh, get to this place, uh, there are sort of two stories that anchor my journey. One is that I was born and raised in Dayton, Ohio, uh, cradle Episcopalian, and went to the only Black Episcopal Church in Dayton, Ohio, St. Margaret's. Uh, Episcopal Church, and uh, its rector was uh, Father M. Bartlett Cochran, who was very significant uh, in my life. He baptized me and presented me for confirmation and presented me for ordination uh, to the priesthood. I never missed a Sunday as, as much as I uh, as possible. I never missed a Sunday. Even when my parents weren't going to church, I'd wake them to have them take me to church, uh, much to the dismay of my siblings, uh, <laughs> threatening that uh, they weren't the ones that wanted to go to church. Uh, uh, but I went to the eight o'clock service, Sunday school, and uh, the later service. For an Episcopalian, you can attend three services and be out by noon. So uh, no, no great sacrifice. But in church, I... Stories that I always love to hear were the stories about Jesus, and in particular about Jesus being born in a manger. And anytime we sang the song uh, Way in a Manger, uh, I remember crying and tears coming to my eyes because as a child, I simply could not imagine how someone would allow a little baby to be born in a manger, in manger realities, as I would come later to describe them. Go well, to the other story that anchors my spiritual journey. And about seven or eight, I remember uh, going downtown with my parents uh, and we stopped at a stoplight in Dayton, so-called inner city. 
and I remember it was a rainy, cold evening, uh, early evening, and two children, whom I presumed to be about my age, seven and eight, were walking across the street, a little girl and a little boy, whom I also presumed were brother and sister, and they were ill-clad for the weather and uh, just looked as uh, if uh, they were uh, uh, living in conditions of poverty, et cetera. And, uh, and so in my seven-year-old imagination, and I was seven or eight, I imagined them to be living in difficult circumstances. And I vowed on that day that I would one day come back to get those children. I also made the connection between Jesus' manger birth, and this I I this before I knew what theology was. I wasn't a, didn't know what theology was and never really heard that word until I was in college. So between Jesus' manger birth and those kids, and I vowed that one day I would go back and get those children. Uh, obviously, as I grew up, the ways in which I first imagined going back and getting those children and they'd stay safe morphed. But what didn't morph was my accountability to those children. And so my journey has been a journey of holding myself accountability to those who are born in manger realities and trapped in manger realities. And uh, it seems to me that that is where our commitment of faith begins, our commitment to partner with God to create a more just future must begin in major realities because that's where the revelation of God entered into and all that we know about God's revelation. And so I brought that with me uh, into theological education as theological education has to be responsible and accountable to God's just future and a just future uh, that begins with the uh, needs, the cries, the vision, the dreams, the hopes of those who are trapped uh, in the manger realities into which God's revelation enters into our world. Karen? I grew up in a small Southern Baptist church um, in Grayson, Georgia, and um, as you know about Southern Baptists, women cannot be ministers, pastors, ordained, and any type of leadership roles over men. So as I was growing up, um, I never saw women in any type of ministry roles or leadership roles, per se. I only saw men. But interestingly enough, and I think David can relate to this, in Southern Baptist life, there's an, a national organization called Woman's Missionary Union. And it was um, a, an organization that provided ministry training and teaching for um, starting with little girls all the way up through um, senior adult women. And so I was part of, if you're a Southern Baptist girl, you're part of that organization. So I was part of that. And it was inside that organization that I saw women taking leadership roles for the first time in my life and for women being in charge of that organization on a national level. So I saw women um, doing ministry and leadership in the best ways that they could. And so what was interesting was that organization was sort of subversive in helping me to hear God's call in my life, even though I wasn't sure what that 
how that would play out practically, but um, I it did help me to hear God calling me into some form of ministry in some way. Um, when I got to college, I saw the first, I encountered the first woman, ordained woman minister I had ever seen. Um, and she happened to be the campus minister um, for the um, um, campus ministry organization that I became a part of. So in my relationship with her, that's where I sort of thought, well, I can be a campus minister. That's what I can do. So I went to seminary thinking that that's what my vocation was going to be. But interestingly enough, um, my background is in math. I was a sci- I was in the field of science and I was going to go into um, um, work at, at um, IBM. I was going to go work at IBM when I graduated. And so when I got to seminary, but I, but I went to seminary thinking, well, okay, campus ministry is now the new direction of my life. When I got to seminary, coming out of a science background, I had never had any type of liberal arts training or theology courses or philosophy courses, anything like that. So I took my first philosophy course when I was in seminary and I was petrified out of my mind. And I remember after um, we had to submit our first paper, the professor stood in front of the class and said, these papers were not very good and began telling us all of the things that we did wrong and things that we needed to learn um, and do better on in the future. And so I was horrified thinking, oh my gosh, I must have made an F on this paper. When I got my paper, I looked at it and I made an A. I was the only A in the class. And for the first time in my life, as a woman, I felt empowered to think critically about philosophy and a different a different type of world that I had never been a part of in the sciences. And I loved it. I just ate it up. Um, and so then that professor invited me to be his teaching assistant. And so I was able to tutor students um, and then able, and then he also encouraged me to go on and do some study at Harvard later on in the field of theology, et cetera. And I had never been encouraged in this kind of way before in my life. And so it was very empowering for me. And suddenly um, um, education, particularly theological education, became an interest of mine. And so as a result, the rest is history. And one of the things that I vowed in going into theological education was this, is that one of the things among many, but one of the things that I would always do is empower and encourage anyone who felt called by God to ministry to achieve that, to nurture them, help them, support them, and encourage them in that journey. I would never, ever, ever stand in their way like my church and denomination did when, when I was growing up. So that's one of the driving forces for my interest in theological education is to help anyone I can um, hear God's call, follow it, and be nurtured in wherever that call takes them. One of the backdrops for this conversation uh, was Willie James Jennings uh, after whiteness and education and belonging. And uh, he uh, makes an assessment about the present state of theological education. Uh, and so I'm interested in each of you kind of giving your own assessment of theological education. Uh, and I guess we have a, an order now. <laughs> so Emily, Kelly, and Karen. So Emily, why don't you start? Well, the, the, there, there are poles that seem to um, 
be at work these days in theological education. There are some who say it's a transformation and there are others that are saying it's dying. I tend to be in the transformation camp, um, much like um, the Christian church in America that is in transformation and not dying. Uh, so is theological education in, in my mind. How we do it, where we do it, when we do it, with whom we do it, uh, and on behalf of whom we do it is changing. Um, and it's not going to look like the church of my youth. You can't bring back what was in this case because the, uh, the society we live in is so different from um, 40, 50, 60 years ago. And uh, attempts that I see in trying to come up with a theological education that will help us get back to that church of the past, it's gonna fail. It's gonna fail and it is failing, frankly. Um, and so we have to look at what is the next. Um, where is God? calling us? How is God calling us? And to know that it's not one size fits all. Different schools have different gifts. Um, and I think those should be respected, cherished, and nourished, and not try to have it look like um, the school just down the road or in another city or even within a denomination having all those schools look and talk and be the same. Um, so for me, um, it's theological education is in many ways struggling, but I also see that it is growing in new directions and new ways um, and is exciting. Kelly? Yes, I, I agree. Uh very much with Emily that theological education isn't dying, but and and not a but. And let me start here that I think that uh, the church and theological education are uh, related and uh, to one another. And what happens to the quote unquote church uh, will have later impact on theological education, and uh, as theological education should have an impact on the church. So these two things go hand in hand. And so I think what we are, what we've seen, we've seen for a while is that the church and hence theological education is being called to account. I often say, because I believe that uh, to call ourselves church is aspirational. It is our task to live into what that, what it means to be church. And in as much as, you know, Karl Barth once said that uh, the theologian, uh, is the self-test of the church or theology is the self-test of the church, so should be in terms of theological education, moving the church uh, closer and closer, further and further along the path of what it means to be church. What we've seen in our society today, and particularly as we are uh, coming through the uh, crisis that was COVID, uh, and then, of course, the pandemic that is ongoing intersected with it of racial injustice. Uh, we've seen the gap 
in our society between the way things are and the way they are supposed to be, God's just future. This has happened, this widening gap has happened on our watch. And in as much as this gap continues to widen between our present and the just future, then that's indicative of how the church has failed itself and how theological education has failed the church and hence has how it has failed uh, living into its mission of accountability. And so what I you see to bring this uh, to a close is that we are being held to account that theological education, uh, if it is going to be relevant and continue to be relevant, uh, then it must help the church grow into itself, help us to move more toward God's just future and take seriously. When I, I take seriously the word seminary, we often talk about theological seminary education. Seminary means a seedbed. Uh, a seedbed for what? It's not a seedbed for people's personal gain. It's not a seedbed for the individual ways in which we uh, may live into whatever it is uh, we claim to live into. Yes, that. but we are always connected to community and we are always connected and accountable to God's promised future, what some call it, what Jesus called the kingdom of God, the beloved community. It's a seedbed for that more just future. So how do we begin to train uh, uh, people who come to us? How do we begin to have an impact uh, outside of the seminary walls? How do we begin to have an impact on our faith communities to grow into who they're supposed to be and to hold themselves accountable as a seminary is to be accountable as a seedbed for God's more just future? And I'll end with this. Emily is completely right. You know, I... Uh, uh, Howard Thurman used to say that uh, God's in the middle of the room and the room, there's a room with many doors and you can go through whatever door, just get to God. Uh, don't worship your door because if you worship your door, you aren't going to open it and find God. Uh, uh, and so I believe that same thing that, you know, there are many pathways uh, toward moving us closer to the just future that is promised us all. Uh, the, the object is just get on the pathway, just get on the arc uh, that bends toward God's justice. And so people can go through the many different doors of the uh, many pathways that are the varieties of theological education. So no one has to do the same thing, but I think that we are all accountable to the same thing. And theological education fails in as much as and I think that's what we're seeing in as much as it's no longer responsive to the kind of the inequities, the breach uh, between injustice and justice. And and that uh, uh, indicative of how the church fails and theological education fails that. I said a lot in a little bit, but I uh, hope that adds some clarity. Yes, thank you. Karen? I just want to say amen to what Kelly just said. Um, I was going to say, um, rather than describing theological education in a state of, um, of, of crisis, as some folks um, say, um, I describe, I would say theological education is in a day of reckoning. That's, that's sort of what I would call it, um, in that, as Kelly was saying just a moment ago, that... Um, at least in my denomination, there's been a gap between theological education and the church, and we have not worked together. We've been 
on, on opposing sides oftentimes um, in trying to um, move um, our constituency toward, you know, God's good future, God's just future, as Kelly was describing. And I see this as a day of reckoning where we need to confess what we have done wrong and to join our our arms and our hands again, the, the, the academy and the church in um, working together and recognizing that change is going to happen um, rather than fight it, uh, rather, rather than ignoring it, but to, but to embrace it and to work together for that more just world and equi equitable world as Kelly was describing a moment ago. Well, Dr. Jennings' book um, talks about, he says that um, theological education carries with it the resources uh, within it to make transformation. Um, what do you see to be those resources? Emily? That's a tough one. Um, because I'm not sure I agree with it. Um, sometimes theological education is a block. Um, because what we do well may not be what the world needs. And by that I mean, um, the, the years ago when I first started teaching, um, one of my colleagues at the time, Amy Oden, who is, is uh, uh, a patristic scholar, uh, wrote a song called, The Halls Are Alive with Big Words. And it was set to the tune of, um, um, the sound of music, the hills are alive. And what she was trying to get at is if we only master in concepts and esoterica, we have lost the world. We have not moved ourselves into a place where um, we have those resources because we're using the wrong resources. Now, if we got some good ones, and I think the ones that um, Willie may be talking about is the ability to think critically, the ability to listen closely, the ability to um, understand there's a wide range of options, and maybe everybody's right or everybody's wrong. But being able to live in what um, some might call a liminal space where sometimes we just don't know. Um, for me, it's, it's um, one of those gifts and graces that sometimes we walk away from far too easily in theological education. So I think I'm gonna have to sit with Willie's idea a bit more. Um, because it's raising for me more questions and uncertainty um, than I think uh, a, a good, clear answer coming forth. Kelly? Yeah, I, I would say this, that it depends upon how one sees the purpose of theological education. 
I do think that theological education has the tools to potentially, it potentially has the tools. And here's, here's what I, uh, why I say this. First, if one sees theological education, and this is what Willie Jennings was in essence critiquing from this sort of enlightenment European model of uh, education, uh, where basically education, uh, as we know it in a uh, world uh, that functions within the framework of a, a white supremacist meta narrative, if if uh, we read theological education through that lens, uh, then it is through a lens of really serving and protecting the status quo, and that's what we found. And uh, producing quote unquote leaders who uh, will do that might might you know a little bit tweak status quo here and there, but but makes it better, but not doesn't transform things. Uh, and so, in that regard, then theological education fails itself, and 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 we don't have the tools. And and that's where you talk about, and I agree with you, the big words, hermeneutics, and all of this, and you. Feel like a nice educated person and you can uh, uh, carry on uh, in a post-enlightenment world that has defined itself from the uh, dominant cultural perspective and defined pedagogy that way is sustaining the status quo. Or theological education, something about God, God talk, a seedbed for the uh, more just future then the purpose of theological education is, yes, critical thinking, as uh, Emily has suggested, critical listening, yes, as Emily has suggested, but it is, and it is also, and perhaps most significantly, it's about expanding our imagination for what is possible, our vision for what is possible, and with that being the case, we do have the tools because we we have the tools that uh, we bring to bear uh, uh, sacred resources, tools that help us to uh, listen deeply, seek uh, understanding of God's own revelation and what that looks like. So I think we have the tools, but uh, I think we don't always use those tools the way in which we're supposed to use them. And in that way, again, theological education has spelled itself. Karen? Okay, yes. Um, I'm probably going to answer this question similarly to the way Kelly responded. I'm going to give you a yes and a no response. On the one hand, I do think theological education has the resources to counter this distortion that Jennings talks about that has existed for centuries in theological, theological education as a result of, you know, white Western European education. And the reason I say that we have it, I think we have those resources is because Jennings goes on to name that he believes um, one of the resources is understanding or, or starting theological education with the hermeneutic of belonging, understanding that that's where we start theological education rather than with, you know, academics and those kinds of things. Start with developing a sense of belonging. And, you know, I, I'm one of these who believes of all places, maybe besides the church, theological education ought to understand that notion of belonging. Um, we should understand um, about 
uh, the greatest commandment that we're called to to do, and that is love God and love our neighbors, and that as at and that God's love is all inclusive and unconditional and all encompassing, and so therefore all are invited, all are welcome, all are included in this love of God and love of neighbor. So theological education most certainly should understand that, and we ought to value that, and we ought to practice it. So I think the resources are there. You know, unfortunately, as Jennings has note, as Jennings has noted, um, I I do agree that theological education has been, you know, heavily influenced by you know white Western European thought and education, and so therefore a lot of um, what we do in theological education is focused on either academics, which that's not a bad thing because academics does help us in terms of thinking critically and being able to discern and critique and evaluate issues and and philosophies and, you know, topics that happen in this world. So it's not all bad. But I think what I'm finding as one who is an academic dean, I find that academics and then I find that things like accrediting agency requirements and catalog requirements and policies and issues of the university and um, academic assessment, and the list could go on and on and on, that those kind of things set the standards for us and guide and direct how we do theological education. As a result, I think we, come, we become very programmatically focused and we miss out on focusing on those things that Jennings has identified as this need for belonging, this need for focusing on the crowd, this need for um, helping um, us to be inclusive of all. Um, I had a, I, had, I was meeting with a couple of grad, seminary graduates recently, so I asked them the question. I said, "Tell me how seminary has influenced or shaped who you are right now," and this, they all almost responded in exactly the same way. But one of them started the, the response by saying, I loved my seminary experience, but what seminary did for me most of all was to help me to become a good Democrat. He said, seminary helped me to know how to debate issues and topics of concerns that are political um, or that are of moral and ethical concerns. But he said, one of the things that I missed about seminary is that it didn't help form my soul as being a person of deep faith and a transformational minister who can then in turn transform other persons so that they become then transformational people in the world for the kingdom of God. They all agreed that seminary was very topic-focused, issue-focused, and we learned how to critique and debate and discuss those things. But as far as seminary transforming and changing our souls and our faith to, to know how to live that out in the world and to engage other people in faithful kinds of ways, they said they missed that. So I, I kind of get this feeling or this sense um, that Seminary is good at doing the academic, the heady, the, the, the theological kinds of thinking and theological language and all of that. And I'm not saying that's not important because it is. I, I think that's part of theological education. 
So I'm not saying that it's an either or. I think it's a both and. And I think we've swung too far in the direction of all of this stuff, accrediting and requiring and and assessing and all of this that we have left behind or forgotten or don't know how to access the ability to create communities and a sense of belonging and inclusiveness in theological education. Well, thank you each for sharing the stories of your journeys and for the insights you've given us so far. We will continue in the next episode. This ends part one of our conversation on theological education. Please join us for part two. You've been listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the Worship Project by going to the website theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your-